Take your seats. Class is in session. Welcome to the Friday Finishing School, where we believe that culture and an appreciation for the classical is foundational in a life lived in pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty. In this class, the only test is one of taste, and the only notes are the ones being played. But make no mistake, this sort of education will lift your spirits and elevate your everyday life in a way that a formal syllabus never could. This season, we're diving into the art, music, and poetry of the Baroque period, which began around the year 1600 and continued up until 1750. It was a time when the upper and middle classes became increasingly more comfortable, and art, though still strongly tied to religious influence, began to branch out to explore different forms and muses. Artistically, Baroque is an elaborate and dynamic style which is recognizable by its richness, drama, tension, and grandeur. It's here in history that we meet cultural giants such as Bach, Vivaldi, Caravaggio, Cervantes, and Shakespeare. It's a period of genius that persists to today. So let's begin. Today's lesson is on the Miserere May by Gregorio Allegri. At the young age of just nine years old, Gregorio Allegri became a chorister at the Papal Chapel. At 15, he became a tenor at San Luigi del Francesca, and by 22, he was not only a talented singer, but now he was also composing music of his own. In 1629, Allegri was appointed as a singer in the Papal Choir, and he remained with the choir until his death at the age of 70 on the 17th of February, 1652. Allegri was an ordained Catholic priest and had a reputation for being a virtuous man, kind to everyone and generous to the poor and prisoners. Carl Prusky was a medical doctor from the early 19th century but his real passion was the acquisition, collection, and transcription of ancient church music. He wrote of Allegri, calling him, quote, a model of priestly piety and humility, a father to the poor, a consoler of captives and the forsaken, a self-sacrificing help and rescuer of suffering humanity. Gregorio Allegri was buried in a tomb in Rome for the papal choir. The inscription on the tomb reads, The papal singers, anxious that those whom melody united in life should not be separated in death, wish this one burial place. A good man, a great vocalist, and a genius composer. Let us look now at his most famous composition, 
the Miserere. Okay, let's dig into the three things that we think you should know about the Miserere May by Allegri. So, Lindsay, what is the first thing that we should know? The first thing that we think you should know is that Miserere May was commissioned by the Vatican and was exclusively performed in the Sistine Chapel. Now, before we go on, I want to address something that I came across in my research. There were people who claimed that Allegri was a castrato, and I had to look that word up, and, well, I wish I hadn't. Starting in 400 AD, prepubescent boys were castrated in order to prevent their larynx from changing during puberty. This not only kept the boy's voice high, it actually reduced the amount of testosterone in the boys, which affected bone joints. They didn't harden in the normal manner. Due to this, their arms and legs, as well as their ribs, grew unusually long, and this alongside specialized vocal training allowed the boys to have incredible lung capacity and breathing power. This practice continued throughout Europe until it started to decline in the late 18th century, and the last place that it became illegal was in the Papal States in 1870. At the height of the castrati's popularity, it is estimated that 4,000 boys were castrated annually, many from poor families who hoped that by having this done, they could secure a better future for their sons. Although many of the castrati performed in the Sistine Chapel choirs, there is evidence that Pope Benedict XIV did try to ban them from singing in the churches in 1748, but their popularity was so huge that he was warned that there would be a drastic drop in church attendance. There is also evidence that some of the boys requested to have this done, that it was their choice. We didn't know if we should include this section, but when looking into the papal choirs, and especially the choir in the Sistine Chapel, the word castrato does pop up. And like so many devastating aspects of human history, we believe that this is something that we should acknowledge. The top vocal lines of Miserere May were indeed sung by castrati from the time that it was first performed in the 1630s, and this likely continued for the next 200 years. The simple fact was that women were not allowed to sing in churches at that time. The most captivating moment is a high C that can only be sung today by well-trained sopranos. Now, back to Allegri. Most experts agree that he wasn't a castrato, as we know that he became a tenor at the age of 15, which is pretty clear evidence that his voice dropped. In 1638, Pope Urban VIII commissioned Allegri to write a hymn for Holy Week. When Pope Urban VIII was elected Pope in 1623, a Venetian envoy described him, saying, quote, The new pontiff is 56 years old. His holiness is tall, dark, with regular features and black hair turning gray. He is exceptionally elegant and refined in all details of his dress, has a graceful and aristocratic bearing and exquisite taste. He is an excellent speaker and debater, writes verses, and is the patron of poets and men of letters. A composer himself, and thanks to his exquisite taste, he realized immediately that the Vatican had a masterpiece on their hands when he first heard the Miserere May performed during the Tenebrae service of Holy Week. This piece was performed exclusively in the Sistine Chapel by the Sistine Chapel Choir. This choir is one of the oldest in the world and is the Pope's personal choir and would perform wherever he was officiating Mass. The Miserere May was only performed on the Wednesday and Friday during Holy Week, and so for over 100 years, it was only heard by a relatively small group of people and only in the Sistine Chapel itself. 
One of those people was a Viennese dignitary who was visiting Rome and heard it being performed. He must have gushed over it to the Emperor Leopold I because Leopold ordered his ambassador to the Vatican to ask the Pope for a copy so that it could be performed in his royal chapel. Surprisingly, the Pope agreed and ordered his Maestro di Capella to copy out the arrangement. Yet, when the Royal Chapel Choir in Vienna performed it, it wasn't at all as good as when the dignitary heard it and raved about it. The Maestro begged to see the Pope, who was upset thinking that musical notation had intentionally been left out of the copy sent to the emperor. The maestro pleaded his case, explaining that the beauty of the work isn't in its composition, but rather in the exceptional singing techniques of the Sistine Chapel Choir. Only two other copies were known to be in existence by 1770, the other two belonging to Padre Giovanni Battista Martini, a famous composer in his own right, and John V, the King of Portugal. It is rumored that the King of Portugal also complained about the quality of the copy he received. It is likely that some of the performance directions were, well, yeah, left out of those three copies that made their way out of the Sistine Chapel. There were techniques used in the performance of this piece that were from the Renaissance period, and the Vatican closely guarded these techniques. So it is truly unknown if we have ever really heard it sung the way that it was originally sung. A priest named Pietro Aliferi did publish it in 1840 with ornamentation that he claimed preserved the original technique, and there are a few recently released recordings of this piece believed to be historically informed, meaning that they do sound possibly as close um, as they can to the original, and these are by the Talis Scholars and the Sixteen. Wow, there's a lot here, a lot to unpack. (laughs) You know, you could perhaps be critical of the Pope for forbidding this to be sung outside the Sistine Chapel. Mm. But, you know, upon hearing about the courts of Vienna and Portugal and how upset everyone was that it didn't sound as good (laughs) as it did in the Sistine Chapel, Mm -hmm. maybe it was less a case of the Pope being maybe petty and more that he really did have such excellent taste that he knew that it could not have been sung better than it could be in the Sistine Chapel by those specific singers. And he wanted to preserve the quality. Mm -hmm. That's my case for Pope Urban the Mm -hmm. eighth. (laughs) (laughs) But in the introduction, you mentioned this high C, right? And I was looking into um, Mendelssohn, another composer. Uh, He was the first to transcribe some of the high notes, and it's alleged that he was actually transcribing a version that he heard that was being sung a fourth higher than Allegri's original composition. Mm -hmm. So when he was writing it from hearing it, he was actually writing it much, much higher. The interesting point of this in an article by Medium.com um, they were saying that it would have not been of any consequence, this Mendelssohn version of the Miserere May, except for that when the first edition of Grove's Dictionary of Music and Musicians was being put together in the year 1880, a small part of Mendelssohn's version accidentally made it into the original composition, like they merged it. And this is where those really, really strikingly high C notes Uh, came in from in the versions that we hear today. So I thought that was really interesting that it kind of by accident, one of the most notable parts of this piece uh, had made it in to what we would listen to today. So the second thing that we think you should know 
is about the curious case of Mozart and the Miserere May. It was December of 1769, and a nearly 14-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart set off from Vienna with his father Leopold for a 15-month tour of Italy. They arrived in Rome just in time for Easter and attended the Wednesday evening tenebrae services at the Sistine Chapel. By this time, this was a must-see for any tourist in the area during Holy Week because Allegra's music was, and this was perhaps in part due to its exclusivity, very popular. When the teenaged Wolfgang returned to his room that night, he sat down and wrote out every single note of the Miserere May from his memory. From his memory! (laughs) The 14-year-old returned to the Sistine Chapel for the Good Friday Tenebrae service in order to hear the piece one last time so that he could make a few minor corrections. We know this happened because Leopold wrote a letter to his wife dated April 14, 1770. In it, he wrote, You have often heard of the famous Miserere in in Rome, which is so greatly prized that the performers are forbidden on pain of excommunication to take away a single part of it, copy it, or give it to anyone. But we have it already. Wolfgang has written it down, and we would have sent it to Salzburg in this letter if it were not necessary for us to be there to perform it. But the manner of performance contributes more to its effect than the composition itself. Moreover, as it is one of the secrets of Rome, we do not wish to let it fall into other hands. So you can well imagine the trepidation that young Mozart and his father must have felt when, while they were in Naples, they were summoned back to Rome for a papal audience with Pope Clement XIV. Instead of excommunicating the father and son, he instead praised Mozart for his remarkable genius and awarded him the chivalric order of the Golden Spur. It was thanks to a teenaged Mozart that the Miserere May was, as one author described it, freed from captivity. Now, it didn't stop there, though. During his travels, Mozart encountered a British historian named Charles Burney, to whom Mozart provided a copy of the work. It then circulated all over and was then transcribed by Mendelssohn and Liszt. Its popularity as a choral work soared and has been beloved by listeners ever since. In fact, I love it so much that it's been my alarm clock song for a long time now. Oh my goodness. I can just imagine waking up how relaxing that would be. <laughs> until I'm until I'm struck with with contrition, begging God to have mercy oh. on me. <laughs> Every morning. Oh yeah, what a day what a way to start your day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean theologically correct, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, you know what? It's so interesting from a BBC documentary that I was watching on this piece. It was noted by the presenter that this may be the first ever instance of bootlegged editions of music <laughs> in history. Yes. Uh, and I love thinking about this whole scenario of Mozart because it was so grave, you know, according to the declaration of the Pope, that to copy or distribute this music outside the Sistine Chapel, like, we're talking excommunication here. Um, And yet Mozart does it. And we see the Pope reacting so favorably. And I like to think it's because the Pope even recognized that Mozart obviously wasn't intending to copy it for any kind of profit or proliferation, right? He was, it was simply out of amazement. I think it speaks to Mozart's 
pure and innocent intentions, that he was copying it genuinely from such awe and love for the piece, and that perhaps Pope Clement XIV saw that and could also relate to the appreciation that Mozart showed for the Miserere May, in addition to seeing just how genius he was. I love that it is possibly the earliest example of bootlegged music. That is yeah. hilarious. Um, <laughs> and just so our listeners can know, too, I, it's a little hard to look at, but there are photos online of Mozart's own hand, like of him, mm. what he wrote when he copied out this piece, which is just mind blowing to me that we can look at that. Um, and I believe they're stored at the Vatican, which is hilarious <laughs> that he yeah. copied it from them and <laughs> now they got it back. Um, yep. But yeah, I, I was blown away by the story. It is the neatest, I think. I mean, the piece is beautiful on its own, but this little bit of this mystery, it just adds such a cool storytelling element. And to know that it's true, right, that it's backed up by yeah. documentation um, just makes this piece just absolutely a historically important piece of music. Yeah, it really makes the whole experience, I guess you could say, of the Miserere May, like really three dimensional. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and we haven't even really dived into the song yet yeah. <laughs> and the meanings of that, but even the history itself is so storied. So I was interested to learn a little bit more about Bernie himself. And it's interesting to note that it's assumed that Mozart, because he was transcribing by ear, he would have included some of the improvisations in the piece that he heard in person mm -hmm. um, that were not necessarily included in the original manuscripts by Allegri. Um, but these embellishments would have been passed down from singer to singer. And so the interesting part here is that Bernie's publication actually lacks these embellishments that Mozart would have included. And so the allegation is that Bernie deliberately removed these embellishments and then destroyed his copy of Mozart's copy in order to avoid trouble with the church. <laughs> which I also loved. And so then this got me wondering as well about how the Vatican actually would have reacted to Bernie publishing The Miserere May. Because it's one thing to congratulate a 14-year-old boy on his yeah. musical genius yeah. and another thing to then see it, uh, you know, being publicly published and distributed. So I casually looked into the history of copyright laws in Europe, as you do, <laughs> yep. and found out that there actually weren't any really uh, in Europe until 1710 with the British Statute of Anne. And even then, it really only pertained to the copying of books at the time. So Bernie would have been safe distributing the highly prized exclusive piece of music from the Vatican, at least legally because there was no such thing then as copyright laws. And so, at least legally, there was nothing the church could do about it. And then even religiously, I'm guessing from what I've read that Bernie would have been Anglican. Mm -hmm. And so even the threat of excommunication would not have held any water with him either. So I just imagine him being like, I'm going to publish this. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it spread across Europe at the time. The third thing that we think you should know is what the lyrics mean and why it's sung during tenebrae services. Let's start with the full title, which is Miserere Me Deus, which is Latin for Have Mercy on Me, O God. The lyrics are from Psalm 51, which was composed by King David, and it is believed that he wrote this as a confession to God after his affair with Bathsheba. This confession is so complete that it is considered to be the model for repentance for both Jews and Christians. 
Charles Spurgeon, the famous Victorian Baptist preacher and writer, called Psalm 51 the sinner's guide, as it provides the sinner with a sort of examination of conscience, and then the language to use in asking for God's forgiveness. It is also believed that St. Thomas More and Lady Jane Grey both recited the psalm at their executions. So what are the words? Well, they're sung in Latin, but I will share just some of the psalm in English here. Have mercy on me, O God, in your faithful love, in your great tenderness, wipe away my offenses. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. For I am well aware of my offenses, my sin is constantly in mind. Against you, you alone, I have sinned. I have done what you see to be wrong, that you may show your saving justice when you pass sentence, and your victory may appear when you give judgment. Let me hear the sound of joy and gladness, and the bones you have crushed will dance. Turn away your face from my sins and wipe away all my guilt. God, create in me a clean heart. Renew within me a resolute spirit. Do not thrust me away from your presence. Do not take away from me your spirit of holiness. Give me back the joy of your salvation. Sustain in me a generous spirit. So why is this performed during Holy Week, and what is a tenebrae service? As a Latin Mass attending Catholic, I have been blessed in the past to have attended tenebrae services. But for the last two years, we have been on lockdown during that time, and so I have done tenebrae at home. Well, during Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter, it's a time of great reflection for Christians. We are meant to join ourselves to Christ in his passion, reflecting on our own sins and how Christ, the most innocent man ever, paid the ultimate price for our sins. It's incredibly sobering. If we believe, then we should be falling on our knees and begging that God have mercy on us for our sins. Tenebrae means darkness. In a church that is solely lit by a special candelabra called a hearse, there are psalms read or chanted along with other prayers from the office of tenebrae, like matins and lauds, etc. These are the prayers that the priests and religious pray each day. After each set of prayers are prayed, one light is extinguished. There are seven candles heading upwards and then seven heading down on the other side, with one candle in the middle, totaling 15 candles. As each one is extinguished, darkness grows. At the end, the candle at the top, which represents Christ, is removed and hidden behind the altar. The church is now plunged into darkness. There is a loud bang. Often, the choir all drops their heavy hymnals at once. The earth shook. The temple veil was torn in two. Jesus is dead. But then, the light that was hidden behind the altar is retrieved and walked back out. The light of Christ is returning. Easter is just around the corner now. It is incredibly powerful and moving. I cannot begin to imagine being in the Sistine Chapel for this and hearing the Pope's own choir singing the Miserere May. Even the hardest heart would be moved to cry out, have mercy on me, O God. Yeah, this really struck me learning about Tenebrae. And unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to be at a Tenebrae service, but it's really high on my list mm-hmm. <laughs> of services to seek out once the, the so many of the restrictions are lifted and perhaps we can revive it too um, close by in our diocese. But I was reading somewhere that the Miserere May would have been sung as the Pope prayed at the altar before the last candle was extinguished. Mm-hmm. And I was really reflecting on this because 
if you do read the words as you did um, the just the very beginning part of the Miserere May, and then listen to the music, it's so gut-wrenching, this yeah. plea to God to have mercy on us. And that last candle extinguished, symbolizing that Christ died and has now been taken from us on Good Friday, combined then with the knowledge and the theology and the faith that he has died for us to grant us this mercy, to save us from our sins, that he has granted what we are begging for in the singing of this piece. And then the last candle goes out and it symbolizes this conversation of love and action between Christ and his church. Just thinking about it sent shivers and still sends shivers down my spine. And it actually makes me want to cry. Like it's so moving. Yeah. And I think what I found really interesting is that it is so moving. I've learned it's not just a Catholic thing that Methodists do mm. it. The Anglican Church does it. I think some Lutheran churches do it. Um, and some other um, mainline Protestant churches do Tenebrae. In fact, when you Google Tenebrae, you often find Protestant churches' websites and information coming up long before you find Catholic information. Mm. So it's one of those really neat services. And um, it's not a liturgy, but, um, you know... Uh, gosh, what would we call it? Well, I guess, yeah, a service, something where you go to mm-hmm. church <laughs> and right. that is so powerful that it has united still Christians across the denominations and throughout time. So just for people listening, if you've never been, ask about it. If you are not Catholic, ask about it. Like it is not exclusively a Catholic thing because like mm-hmm. what Michelle's saying, it is so moving and it, it's just something that everybody really, if you are a believer, you should experience during Holy Week at least once in your life. You know, the story, meaning, and raw emotion that is found within the notes of the Miserere May evokes the same visceral response in us today that we can imagine was felt by the people who heard it exclusively within the walls of the Sistine Chapel centuries ago. It's enduring desperation and beauty, both a pleasure to the ear and an arrow piercing the heart, prompts us to continue to reflect on just what a treasure we have in the accessibility and promulgation of Allegri's great masterpiece. In that same article that I mentioned from medium.com, it compels us, I think, best. Quote, So whenever you hear Allegri's Miserere Me today, remember how lucky you are. Lucky that Mozart chose a good time to visit Rome. Lucky that Mendelssohn transcribed it up a fourth. And lucky that one of Grove's early editors had a momentary lapse of concentration. End quote. Eternally and providentially lucky then, are we. And so now it's your turn. Here is your homework. If you haven't already, please go and listen to the full performance of Allegri's Miserere May. We recommend the version performed by The Sixteen. You can find it on YouTube. Next, tell us what you think on our Patreon page or Friday Finishing School Facebook group, where we would love to continue the discussion. And finally, be sure to share this piece and your newfound appreciation for it in your little corner of the world. That concludes today's lesson here at the Modern Ladies Friday Finishing School. We'll see you again soon. Class dismissed.